And now for something completely different. So we uh, have been walking through the book of Romans for three years. And in those three, every time I say that, you laugh. And we've walked through it verse by verse and section by section, slowly over much time. Today I'm going to do the whole book in 45 minutes or 40 minutes or 35 minutes. But we're going to go and do, I felt as we move on, next uh, we're going to move into the book of Malachi. Uh, We'll move into the Old Testament, just about six weeks, so it'll be shorter and sweeter in that respect. Uh, But today we're going to walk through the book, and the the book of Romans offers uh, natural sections, and we're going to kind of take a look at section by section as we go through, and each section we're just going to kind of touch on the mountaintop of that section And just as a way to wrap up where we've been over these years is to kind of pull the threads of the book together into one final um, flyover, so to speak. So it's very different than the way I normally would approach a text or uh, that kind of thing, expositing it piece by piece. But we're going to see what we can do uh, as we pull it all together and try to leave with a big picture of where we have been. With that in mind, I think I'm just going to read the first few verses of chapter 1 as a way of of starting, and then we're going to run through much of it. But Paul begins his letter saying that he is a servant of Christ Jesus who is called to be an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel, which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, But he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people. We have come to worship. To pour out our hearts to you in love and praise. But even now to sit at your feet and receive from you uh, your word. Father, I pray that you, in the midst of what we do today, would speak to us, that you would write your word upon our heart, its importance and its power, and that by it, you would shape and change not only our hearts, our minds, but our very lives. For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus, amen. Reviewing Romans together. So Romans, as we have seen for much time together, is Paul's longest letter. It's his most systematic letter. And the central purpose of the gospel, of the, of the book of Romans, is to present and explain the one true gospel. There's one gospel for all human beings. And he's showing how the gospel, in the, the gospel is for every human being, that every human being needs a Savior. It doesn't matter where you are from and what part of the globe, what nationality you are, what economic status you have, whether you're male or female, everyone needs a Savior. And as Paul addresses it in the book of Romans, particularly between the issue of Jews and Gentiles, that it's not just the Jews who need a Savior, but the Gentiles. And it's not just the Gentiles who need a Savior, but the Jews. And there's one Savior for both. The Jews are not exempted because of their history and law. And there may be some who, in their their own sense, that we have the prophets, we have the covenants and the promises that God has given. We have the law, and, and we have had this for all this time. And so, in some ways, they might think they're exempted. And a lot of them refused Christ. 
The Gentiles are not excluded because of their history and their lack of the law. Because they didn't have it and because they were outside of Israel for all of these centuries, they're not excluded from it. The Jews aren't exempted and the Gentiles aren't excluded, but Paul is showing that in the Savior, all these distinctions between Jew and Gentile and any other ethnicity you want to throw in there, all of these distinctions before God are abolished in the one gospel of the one Savior, that we are all one in Christ. And so, really driving Paul's long, systematic explanation of the gospel through the book of Romans there is this one really very practical application that it appears that he is after. And that is unity. Unity in the church. Oneness and peace in the body of Christ. The unity of all of God's people. An equality amongst all of us before God and before and in Christ. And so... He has a particular concern, as I said, as he's writing this for Jew and Gentile. And as you know, in this early, particularly in this early context of the church, the Messiah came, Jesus came in the midst of the Jewish nation, and we see uh, those thousands on the day of Pentecost come to Christ, and as Paul has gone city to city, he goes to the synagogue, and the Jew first, and then the Gentile, but we see a whole number of Jews who come to Christ and are the foundation of the church. But as we've said many times, surprising to them as the Messiah is preached, Gentiles who have no background in the promises and the of prophets and the law are accepting Messiah as their Savior. And so you have churches then that are, that are blended of, of Jews and Gentiles in this early period in particular it's very heavy, there, there is a, more of a Jewish presence at this time and place, and this growing Gentile presence, and it creates some tensions in the church. And as you read throughout the book of Acts and other places, we see some of those te- tensions, the Judaizers, who are trying to say that Gentiles need to also follow the law, or be circumcised, and do various things to follow, and there are, you know, are the Gentiles really fully in, you know, are they full members, you know, like, we are, the, you know, we are the ones who have the law and the prophets and the history. Like, who are these upstarts? You know, so there's this tension that lives in the church. In some ways, the book of Romans can be summarized in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Where Paul says, here, in Christ and in the church, there is neither Greek nor Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, and elsewhere he says male or female, but all, Christ is all and he is in all. That's what he is saying. Paul says it here. He explains it in the book of Romans. He walks you through it from beginning to end, how this is true. The righteousness that the Jews seek is only obtained in Christ. The wisdom that the Gentiles Love and seek is only revealed in Christ so that he is all and all in all. And so the application of the gospel uh, to the Roman church, as Paul is writing it, and so in a sense to all churches, is that unity, there is one body in Christ. It's as important today as it was then. The tensions may be different, but they can be as real 
There are racial tensions today. They've been stirred up again in many ways. We are more conscious of them than we have been. And this is a word to us that we need to hear. There is no division in the body of Christ. Christ is all and he is in all. Whatever the tensions and divisions we want to bring up, the gospel will demolish them. And what levels the playing field, what puts every human being on common footing before God is all the truth of the gospel as Paul unpacks it here. All human beings are created by God. Not just the Jews. They might have thought that or not thought that, but they were specially created, right? There is that sense. But he's saying all human beings are created by God. All human beings are in the image of God. All human beings fell in Adam. Not just the Gentiles, but the Jews fell as well. There weren't even Jews at that point. The entire human race has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we need a Savior to bear the guilt of our sin. Every human being, no matter what color, ethnicity, race, gender, we all need a Savior. We all need forgiveness. We all need a Messiah. And so John Stott says about the book of Romans, he says it's a full and fresh statement of the apostolic gospel which would resolve the conflict between Jews and Gentiles over the covenant and the law and so promote the unity of the church. And that's what Paul is after in, in writing it. But he gives us the most beautiful, long, strong exposition of the gospel that the Bible contains for us. And so we're going to hit the, the peaks of it. And first, we're just taking chapters 1 to 3, what Paul is doing there and laying the foundations of the gospel uh, is to show that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, that may be common sense to us. That may be old hat to us. We may already know this. But it, when you're speaking to this blend of Jew and Gentile, and maybe even now as you speak this to the world, there are going to be those who said, you know, you can be saved. And they'll say, saved from what? This is a sense that all have sinned and fall short of the glory. There is something from which we must be saved. And when Paul says all have sinned, that's a shocking statement at some level to say Jews and Gentiles. Even though you have the law. All have sinned. And that's where Paul is going. And so the failure of the Gentiles, he tells us in chapters 1 and 2, and you remember in chapter 1, there's much in there where he tells us that the Gentiles, though they are created in the image of God, and there is a, a sense in which they could see the truth and power about God in creation, right? His power and his, and his attributes, it says that they could know from what was created there's a sense in which they knew God, but then it says that even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, and they suppressed that knowledge, and they ended up worship, worshiping created things and creation. And so the Gentile failure is that even though they had enough to know God, they suppressed that knowledge and worshiped creation, and the failure of the Jews, which he goes on to unpack in chapters 2 and 3, is although they had the covenants and the promises and the law and all of these advantages... They're unable to keep the law. It's great that you have the law, but they're not keeping it. The, the, the sacrificial system was given to them at the same time the law was given to them because here's the law. 
And now here's all the sacrifices you're going to have to make because you're going to blow it majorly every day. And so the Old Testament is a bloody affair of sacrificing, culminating on the Day of Atonement when we're going to make sacrifice for the whole nation for you know, any, sin, any sin that we've failed to cover you know, during the year with all the other sacrifices. You know, we're going to, on the Day of Atonement, we're going to make sure we cover everything. They're not keeping the law. The law only reveals their sin and their need for sacrifice. The law cannot save. And so in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Jews are sinners too. It's the message of chapters 1 to 3. Paul is methodically showing that Jew and Gentile are both guilty before God, that all have sinned and fall short of his glory. Even the Jews, despite all their advantages, he says, you're no better off. The gospel is for you. You need a savior. And so he says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Jew and Gentile, for anyone who would believe. Anywhere in the world, anywhere across time, the gospel is God's power. It's the gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the power to save anyone, no matter what your background, Jew or Gentile or otherwise. And so in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 20, he culminates all this by saying, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one can fulfill the law and stand right with God. Not Jews who had it, not Gentiles who didn't have it. Jews who had it written in books and Gentiles who had it written in their heart and the knowledge of God, nobody kept it. No flesh, he says, no human being will be justified through the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It was God's gift to show us where we fall short. Show us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory and are justified, if they're justified at all, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, apart from anything that you could do or you could accomplish or anything that would come from you or any way that you feel like you could that we, we hold one is justified apart from all of that, which is going to be a shocking news flash to a Jewish population. All of us are in the same boat. There is one way of salvation. There's one gospel. There's one God and one man or mankind and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And so salvation is by grace through faith. That's what he's teaching as he reaches this culmination at the end of chapter 3. And as he moves into chapters 4 and 5, he digs down into this idea that salvation is by grace through faith. That is the gospel. And he digs into it. He, he wants to biblically illustrate it. He wants to show everybody, but Jews in particular, from the scripture, why this is true. He's going to illustrate it. Show this is the way that God works. How are people saved by grace through faith apart from the law? Let me show you an example, he says. And he goes, in my Bible, he goes to page 15. 
right? So my Bible is 1,875 pages long. It's an ESV. It's larger print, so maybe more pages than you got. But So 1,875 pages long. The New Testament starts on page 1,463. But when Paul wants to illustrate that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, he goes to page 15. He says, take Abraham, for example. And the story of Abraham in my Bible starts on chapter 12 of Genesis on page 15. He says, I'm going to illustrate this to you. I'm going to show you the way that God does this. And he takes us to the very earliest pages of Scripture. Take Abraham. In other words, this is not a new way of salvation. He's going to say, this is the essence of the covenant of grace. This is the essence of God's one way of salvation that from before the foundations of the world he had planned in Christ. And it's revealed from the, the fall. We've gone to that verse many times where the, it'll be the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And, and it's that proto-gospel that is preached even to Adam and Eve that there will be this one, the seed of the woman who will be the seed of Abraham who will through whom all nations will be blessed. And so he goes to Abraham and says, this isn't a new way of salvation. This is the covenant of grace, the one covenant of salvation from the beginning of Scripture to the end. And so in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And that's true for all of us. And this is Scripture comes after it over and over again. If he was justified by, if there's something you have done, if there's something that you can claim, if there's some, something that comes from you, then, there, then there's room for you to boast. Abraham, he says, if he was justified by words, he has room to boast, but he doesn't. For what does the Scripture say? It says this, Abraham believed God. He had his faith was in God. He trusted in God, right? And so he believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He was saved by God's grace through faith. Paul is showing the Jews of his day that the hope of salvation was never in the law. It can't be in the law. It is by grace through faith. And so in chapter 4, verse 5, he says this, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is his conclusion from the story of Abraham. And it's the, it's the conclusion and, and the essence of the gospel from the earliest pages to the one who does not work. In other words, doesn't try to earn it by his own good works who doesn't try to, to ascend into a right relationship with God and acceptance with Him by our own righteousness and what we can accomplish to the one who does not work, but in fact repudiates His work. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. To the one who believes in Him, who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness in Christ. And so all who believe are the children of Abraham. Not just the Jews, but the Gentile down the pew who believes in Jesus, who believes and trusts in, by grace, it, through faith, in God's saving work, are the children of Abraham. Children of Abraham by faith. Paul makes a big deal about this in the book of Galatians. 
right, that all who are of the faith of Abraham are his true children. Not just those who are of the lineage of Abraham, have the DNA of Abraham, right? Abraham was Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes from them. The children of Abraham are the 12 tribes, his descendants. And he is saying it's not those who share the DNA of Abraham that are his true children, but those who share the faith of Abraham are his children. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by his faith, circumcision through the all of the Old Testament. All of the law and all of Israel's history was what? It was a sign and a seal of the righteousness that we have by faith, which, by the way, in the New Testament is baptism, the sign and the seal of the righteousness that we have by faith. And he says the purpose of all this was to make him the father of all who believe, Old Testament and New Testament. Abraham is the father of all who believe, who share his faith. And Paul explained this clearly, and and we'll get to it in the first half of chapter 9, when he says that not all Israel is Israel. There is an ethnic Israel, a national Israel, but not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel share the faith of Abraham and are saved. It is not the children of the flesh, but the children of faith. And so in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, while we were enemies. We read this a moment ago. While we were enemies, we were... So he includes himself. He's a Jew. And he says that while we, all of us, Jew and Gentile, we, the church, we who are now in Christ, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. If anybody is reconciled to God, it is by the death of his son. And he proves this from the rest of chapter 5. If you remember the end of chapter 5, he shows that in Adam all died. Right? He makes that statement. In Adam all died. When he says that, he takes Jew and Gentile back to creation, back to the fall, back to the problem. He says, in Adam all died. Every human being. And yes, you get now Jews and the other nations, and the Jews are given the law and such, but he's making the point, and will continue to, but the law couldn't save you. And that we're all still in the same boat. And so by the end of chapter 5, he shows you are either in Adam, and so you remain under his judgment, or you you are in Christ, and you are reconciled to God. You are either in Adam, and you are his enemy, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Or you are in Christ and you are reconciled to God in one of his children. So in chapter 6, he moves into sanctification. Sanctification by grace through faith. So we have our justification by grace through faith. Our salvation is by grace. And now he goes in to say, you know what? Your sanctification, your growth in holiness, your being more and more like Jesus is also by grace through faith in Christ And so the gospel unites the church, Jew and Gentile, and every believing Christian. And again, we say there's Jew and Gentile encompasses any other nationality in the world. You were either in Israel and a Jew, or you were something else, anything else, and anything else is a Gentile. So it's all human beings by those two categories, and so he unites in Jew and Gentile, in the death and resurrection of Christ. And he shows the inadequacy of the law and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
right, through chapter 6 to 8, the, the inadequacy of the law and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says that sanctification, this growing in a life of holiness, is not achieved in our own strength. As Jesus had already taught, apart from me, when it comes to this kind of thing, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, right, and so he wants to show that it is the freedom from the power of sin is not through the law. The law has no power. He, is, he shows that the law tells us what's wrong. And, and if you hold the law up like a mirror and you look into it, it reveals to you all the ways you fall short, all the ways you sin. But that law, what it shows you, it has no power to change you. It not only has no power to change you and to help you stop doing what it says not to do, it has no power to forgive all the ways you already have. It has no power to do anything. It stands outside of us, judging us, showing us our sin. And he says, so our sanctification is not found in the law or in trying to do the works of the law, but rather it is not in our own strength at all. Freedom from the power of sin and the judgment of sin our growth in holiness, he says, is experienced in our union with Christ. That when we believe into Christ, we are baptized by his spirit. And the, and the spirit being poured out on his people unites us by his spirit with Christ. It is this union where the power of the Holy Spirit is the power and the hope of a new life. And so in Romans 6, verse 4, he says, we were buried, therefore, with him, with Jesus. By baptism, and I would say that's the baptism of the Spirit. It was when the Spirit is poured out on us and we are, are, are made connected to Jesus. So when we're connected to Jesus by his Spirit, we are buried with him by the baptism of the Spirit, united to Christ in his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the, by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in this newness of life. It is our union with him by the outpoured spirit that we're united in his death, we're dead to sin, and united to him in a new life in Christ. So in chapter 8, well, in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, starting in 11, he says this, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. It is the truth about you in the gospel. It is not something you've achieved through the law. It's something that, that is given to you in connection with Christ. You are dead to sin. Its dominion over you is broken. And so he says you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ. Sin shall have no dominion over you. It is no longer your master. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness, servants of Christ not by any accomplishment of yours, but simply by the baptism of the Spirit and its work to connect you to Christ and His work. And so in chapter 8, many have called it the, the chapter of the Spirit. It's noticed very significantly in chapter 7 about the law. The Spirit's not mentioned. And part of it is to say that the law is not saving And so we have the chapter of the Spirit, and Paul goes in chapter 8 to explain the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We will not fulfill 
We, we, will, we have the chance, the ability in Christ. We abide in Him. We will bear much fruit by His Spirit. And so in chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, he says this, All who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Right? The true sons of Israel. The true sons of Abraham. The true sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. In a newness of spirit, He leads us. He empowers us. Chapter 8 crescendos. As we said, if, if Romans is, is a peak in the Scripture, chapter 8 is, is the is the Alps or the, <clears throat> the, the high peaks in the book of Roman itself. And he crescendos with this, knowing this gospel that we don't save ourselves, that it's by His grace and through faith and it comes as a gift of God and that by His Spirit we're united to Christ and being united to Him we have the power of a new life and He begins to change us and we belong to Him. And, and all of this is by the power of God and not by works and not by anything that I have done. And He says if all of this is true as He crescendos, He says there is a confidence for those who have experienced God's electing grace that has united them to Christ. Those who have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And so in chapter 8, verse 30, it says those whom He has predestined in eternity past, those also He called and He justified in time. Those He predestines, He calls and He justifies. And those that He calls and justifies, it says that He glorifies. From beginning, eternity past to the glory of an eternity in the future is the work of God's grace. And he says our confidence in what God has done, not in what we have done, then is unshakable. And he goes and he starts in verse 35 of chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? What, what can do it? Who can do it? He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness. And these are the things that if you are warned in some churches, you better be careful because when you suffer, you just might fall away. Right? If there's tribulation, you might lose your faith. If you have, you know, go through some hardship, you lose your job and you, you go through some trouble and you have, you know, famine or nakedness or dangerous sword. He says, can these separate us? And the answer Paul gives is that's not true. What can separate you from the love of Christ? This list shall tribulation or distress or persecution. He says, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. To him who loved us. Not because you're strong. Not because you can do the law and you can say, you know, keep yourself saved and keep yourself good no matter how hard or bad it gets. No, you're a conqueror. Through him who loved us, that, who predestined and called and justified and who says he will glorify and that he has united us to his own son by his own spirit in an eternal bond that is unbreakable. No, and all these things were more than conquerors. And so he says, no, there is anything else in all of creation that is able to separate you from that baptism of the Holy Spirit in which God came in and united you to his Son. And he goes from this beautiful exposition of 
our need for the gospel and this gospel covenant of grace that, that binds all of us together in his sanctifying work by his spirit. And you get to chapter 9, and there are some who get to chapter 9 and say, it's like hard breaks. Now for something. He goes into the, if you've read chapter 9 to 11, he talks about the Gentiles being grafted into the one people of God. And he does some history and theology. But for Paul here, after unpacking the gospel as God's way of salvation for all people, we said that, that his driving goal is the unity of the church. And what is in this early church, as I said, where Jew and Gentile now are the mix and the tensions arise, there is this tension about the relationship between the two. What about the Jews? And how do the Gentiles fit in? And so 9 to 11, he, as he has done this and he has put us all in the same boat, in the same Savior, with the same gospel, in the same sanctification, in the same union with Christ, the same electing gracious purposes of God, and then he unpacks, as he says, issue between Israel and the church. How are we to understand it? How are we to put this together in our heads? What he was doing in Israel all these years, and how the Gentiles all of a sudden are like in the middle of it. He starts by explaining, as I said earlier, not all Israel is Israel. That it's not the children who have the DNA of Abraham who are his true children, but those who have the faith of Abraham that are his true children, the true children that is the children of God. It is faith. Even in the Old Testament, the only true children of Abraham were the children of faith. In other words, Jewishness did not save people. Only faith did. Even in the Old Testament, if you have been here for any number of years, I preached through the story of Elijah, which takes place in the time of Ahab and Jezebel, where the entire nation is apostate under an apostate monarchy. And at that time, what does it say? That God preserved for himself 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in the middle of Israelite history, underneath an Israelite king, the entire nation is apostate. Their Jewishness didn't save them. They were worshiping Baal. They were not true believers. But God reserved for himself a people. 7,000 who didn't bow the knee to Baal, but who were, who were children of Abraham according to his faith. And so despite the advantages and the blessings that Israel enjoyed in the Old Testament, they are not any less sinful than the rest of humanity. And they need a Savior. And he speaks, Paul speaks of the sadness and the justice when many Jews reject their own Messiah. And they're being cut off, right? And that's the language of Romans 10 and 11, that, that they reject the Messiah, and so they are cut off from believing Israel and accursed. They're not part of the children of Abraham who believe. And so in 11.5, Paul also rejoices that there's a remnant who believe and are saved. And so in chapter 11, he actually references that time in the life of Elijah and, and it uses it to illustrate 
how it is in his own time, where most of Israel has rejected Messiah. Just in the time of Elijah, most of Israel was apostate and worshiping Baal, but there was a remnant preserved by God. And Paul says it is exactly that way right now as he's establishing his church. When all of Israel is rejecting the Messiah, there is a remnant, a strong Jewish remnant on which is the foundation of the church, the true children of Abraham believing in their Messiah, but into this stump of Jesse, right, which is Israel, which is their Messiah, which is Christ. Into this stump, God grafts believing Gentiles. Unbelieving Jews are cut off and accursed, and believing Gentiles, and belief of the faith of Abraham, they become children of Abraham and are grafted in. And so the church does not replace Israel. See, those who hear us teach things like this will say, well, you believe in a replacement theology and that you say that the church and Gentiles have replaced Israel. That's not what it says. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this. The church is Israel. The church is Israel. Gentiles join Israel through faith in their Messiah, that all believing Jews are the stump of Jesse, are, 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 are those that God had reserved for himself of the faith of Abraham. And into that stump, believing Gentiles are grafted. They become part of it. And Israel is then reckoned through her Messiah. Abraham's children are those who are in Christ through faith. And so he says this, he describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that you, you Gentiles, at one time you were separated from Christ, being outside of Christ, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Right? At one time you were not part of Israel. You were alienated and strangers to the covenants of promise, all those Old Testament promises and the promises of grace and the promises to Abraham and to David. And these, you were you were alienated from the commonwealth, you were strangers to the promise, so you had no hope, and without God in the world, you had no idea what was going on out there as Gentiles. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far off have been brought near. Brought near to what? To the commonwealth of Israel, to the promises that, that, that enrich all of the Old Testament that are for the sons of Abraham, that is the children of faith. You've been brought near. By the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. To create in himself a new, one new man. Even in the Old Testament, Gentiles could convert and join Israel. There are several Gentiles in Jesus' lineage, in the genealogies that are given to us. They're, They're part of the lineage of the Messiah. You could always convert to Israel. Many did. Just now it's happening in mass. And where Jews themselves are cutting themselves off through unbelief, Gentiles in mass believe in the God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel and enter into the church. Church simply means the assembly of God's people. He moves in as we just close and round this out is in the last few chapters. He, he takes this gospel and he says it's for all of life. Right? This gospel changes everything. It changes you, it changes me, and it changes the way we live. And so Paul applies uh, the new life of the Holy Spirit from chapter 8 
to God's people? How do people who are dead to sin but alive unto God in Christ, how do they live? What does it look like? And he paints in broad strokes uh, a righteous life. The law does not save us. But righteousness flows from life in Christ, from that union that we have with him, from that spirit that we've been baptized by, that he, the spirit, is the fountain of a new life. Jesus says on that day, you know, springs of living water will flow, and we're told he was talking about the Holy Spirit, who is the fountain of a new life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in this newness of life, and he's simply painting the broad strokes of what this looks like. It's not the law of Moses that governs, but the law of love. The law of Moses stands outside of us. It judges us, and in that sense, it crushes us. But the law of love is that work of God to give us a new heart, a new spirit. He takes our heart of stone, and he gives us a heart of flesh, a heart of love to him and to all things that concern him. And so instead of being beaten by a law from outside of us of how we need to be and how we fail, but rather something springs up from inside of us, a new life, a gracious work of the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 13, verses 8 and 10, he says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The weak must love the strong without judgment, and the strong must love the weak without condescension. In 15 verse 7, he says, And welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. One body, united in Christ, by the truths of the gospel. I was thinking about how to wrap this up and what is that grand application and I guess I just kind of stand back and there's a lot of application in there if you haven't caught it but I would simply say part of it is to say that this is the word of God. This is the gospel. The one true gospel given for all time to the church for us to believe and to experience but also for us to preach and to teach And the one who shares any other gospel than this is anathema. Paul says it in the beginning of Galatians, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one I preach to you, let him be accursed. This is the one gospel for all people, for all time. We can preach no other. It is the offer of the gift of salvation to all who would believe entirely apart from the law and from works. It is the free forgiveness, the gift of righteousness in Christ, a new heart of love that makes us alive unto God. It is the gospel. It is free. And it is beautiful. It brings us to that place where we offer ourselves to Him as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. Even as we have skipped like a stone across the surface of Romans this morning, I pray that it's truths which catch hold, not just of our minds, but of our hearts. And that this Jesus who is here high and lifted up, 
the one Savior for all of us. Father, help us. Help us to embrace him by faith, to walk with him in love, to bring glory and honor to you because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.